you're listening to the SSPX podcast, and welcome to episode 10 of the Crisis in the Church series. In this episode, we are joined by Father Paul Isaac Franks, professor at St. Mary's College, as we begin our study of modernism. Today, we'll learn about the background of modernism. First, we'll see how it sprang up in Protestant theology, then how modernism tried to give an entirely new interpretation of Scripture and the divinity of our Lord, and finally, how these errors spread into the minds of some Catholic theologians in the late 19th century. By the end of the episode, you'll see how these theologians would have been extremely influential in the minds of churchmen throughout the 20th century and beyond. If you'd like to learn more about this series we're doing on the crisis in the church, or go back and revisit our previous nine episodes, or if you want to support this project, please visit sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. Now, we'll turn to our conversation with Father Franks. Well, welcome back to the SSPX podcast, and we are here for an episode with Father Paul Isaac Franks. And Father, you're the one who got this whole crisis series started and rolling, and this is the first time other than the introduction that we've had you on, and it is a pleasure. Father, how are you today? Uh, well, thank you, Andrew. Yeah. Good, good. No accidents or anything? How's, how's your foot? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for asking, Andrew. My foot is, um, all but one toe is perfect. The one toe. Sorry. No, it's okay. Just had to ask that. <laughs> you can ask that. I can tell you. The one toe is um, I I pinged it doing toaster bar this morning when I landed in in CrossFit, Oops. and um, and now it looks different from all the other toes. <laughs> well, I don't think it's supposed to be like that, Father. No. Just a heads up. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> I'm accepting, anyway. yeah, sympathy cards. No, I'm just <laughs> right, right. Well, we are starting our we're starting our uh, several episode long dive into modernism. We've been looking at liberalism. We've been looking at you know what's wrong with the world with Father Sherry, and now we're looking at uh, modernism itself. And we are having you on to discuss the very beginnings of this modernist infiltration that that happened within the Catholic Church. Uh, so. I'll put the ball in your court, Father. Where do we start with this? What are what are the things that we need to know before we get started in this study of modernism? Historically, I think it's just that we're up to speed with what happened to the view of religion generally in the intellectual culture with Luther, with Kant. Those are the two, for me, those are the two big kind of cultural landmarks that paved the way for modernism because... The Catholic view was an objective view. God, we know, exists by philosophy. The human soul, we know, exists by philosophy. We have certain obligations towards God, we know, by natural reason, by philosophy, natural religion, and so on. It's the whole of the Catholic apologetic science, apologetics. And then for a Catholic, obviously, God does intervene in history by Jesus Christ, definitively and lastly and perfectly. Humans recognize by their normal powers that um, God has spoken by Jesus Christ by reading the Bible, which is a historical document, and we know it is because it passes the same standards as any other historical document of its day. We know it was written by the people it was meant to be written by. We know that they were eyewitnesses or that they interviewed eyewitnesses and so on. So for a Christian, a Catholic, classically we take the Bible as especially the New Testament, 
all of the Bible, but we take the, the New Testament as um, historical document, and we read in it that Jesus Christ worked miracles and worked prophecies, uh, made prophecies, and himself fulfilled prophecies. So we know this is a man from God, and what he says should be taken seriously and believed. And if he claims that he really is the divine son of God himself, then we believe it. So for for us, that's all very objective. Something, religion is something very objective. God has spoken to man, and we know what he has said, and he's provided a church that gives us certainty of what he has told us and what we have to believe and what we have to do and the rites and ceremonies that he's instituted for the salvation and the sanctification of man. And what began to happen as far as man's grasp on that objective reality is it began to be eroded little by little. So first of all, with Luther, which we've seen, the loss of the objective sense of religion, that Luther still believes that God has revealed, but since there's no more principle of authority, no more church, no more visible church, no more hierarchy, no more magisterium, those things being rejected, um, there becomes more and more discussion amongst Protestants about actually what is revealed. So the sense of one absolute truth begins to be lost. So that's a sort of religious subjectivism, if you like. Uh, Mm -hmm. I believe this, you believe that. So it even though we believe that there is an absolute truth, we can't really get to it. We don't really know. We've got to, we've got religious opinions, but I don't have. Generally speaking, there's so much um, disagreement on doctrine that it, be, it begins to be a question: well, What do we really know of what God has revealed? And so there's a, a drift into liberal Protestantism, and that comes um, also under the influence of Kant's philosophy. Can we really even know? anything can we really even know right. the nature of reality because if i can't know the right. nature of reality i'm not really sure what happens outside of me then i don't really know if there are miracles and i don't really know if there are prophecies so i don't really know if god has historically intervened so that's sort of the beginnings of modernism modernism um was already started by kant actually you know he right. already wrote a book at the end of his life, Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone, and he denies the historical truth of Lutheran dogma, although he was himself Lutheran, culturally. So he denies original sin, he denies the divinity of Christ, but he says there's still a symbolic value in in those things. They shouldn't be um, discarded altogether as concepts because they explain man's evil tendencies, they explain uh, man's desire to become a son of God in some way. So he already starts to Um, having rejected the truth, the actual absolute historical truth and doctrinal truth of Christianity based on Revelation, he still starts reinterpreting it already. And that's really the soul of modernism. Um, A modernist has lost the faith. Okay. They've lost the faith in an objective supernatural revelation. But rather than just becoming an atheist, um, generally speaking, the modernist is one who wants to keep the positive values that he has found in Christianity and um, give them a new sense. 
give them a nuisance which is compatible with the modern subjectivist philosophy, with the not really knowing for sure. This subjectivism that that is that we've seen with liberalism already, this is getting kind of a new face when we talk about uh, the religious sense. There's, is it a fair comparison to say that that liberalism did to philosophy what modernism is doing to theology, or is it more complicated than that? Liberalism did to philosophy. So, so liberalism kind of destroyed philosophy. Now modernism is is destroying theology, but they're both kind of working on the same on the same ends on the same playing field. Is or is that a really poor analogy? And am I missing the point? No, 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 no. I think it's fair. Um, let's see. Liberalism really is a political application of subjectivism. Right. So, in other words. Um, the individual and the individual's values and the individual's freedom um, cut loose in the in the political realm. So personal freedom becomes the organizing principle for everything. Certainly, they're mm-hmm. related. They're all subjectivism is the is the problem in a certain is sense. The, is the base that subjectivism is is going to cut across liberalism and modernism? It's going to cut across philosophy, political thought and theology, religious thought. It's going to be that that kind of, that straw that broke the camel's back across everything. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. In a nutshell. That helps, yeah. <laughs> at least, because I like things simple. But this, but no, this is this is making sense. Okay. So the, the real break in philosophy is the break from realism. Right. So in that sense that as a realist, I am not the source of truth. Reality is the source of truth. And if I want to be right, I have to conform my mind to the thing outside of me. So that Mm -hmm. restricts my free will because I'm not free to believe whatever I want. I'm free to, if I want to be in the truth, there's one thing that I am obliged to submit to, and that's the actual objective reality outside of me. The reality limits my absolute freedom unless I want to be free to be philosophically wrong which is a kind of freedom of insanity yes so there was a whole movement in protestantism which led to what we'll call liberal protestantism um really from the time of kant on that started turning its sights to the bible no longer willing to accept that the Bible was a historical document in the straightforward sense in which Catholics had already taken, always taken it to be, um, wanting to explain where did this come from without, you know, a divinely appointed, miracle-working, supernatural, revealing Messiah. Mm-hmm. So... We have these documents which speak about Jesus Christ. Who was Jesus Christ? Obviously, if you're a Kantian and you've lost the sense of an absolute religious truth, you're not going to be comfortable with the the classic explanation. We don't look for medieval, miracle-working, divine wonder men anymore. We're modern and enlightened. So, so we have to, but we still, there's enough, 
there's enough facts that if you want to be scientific, you have to explain the facts. So where did the Bible come from? Where did the New Testament come from? Where did those stories come from? What did they mean? They didn't come okay. from nowhere. So let's, and the Protestants set about explaining them. A kind of rationalist um, tradition of biblical scholarship. You know, some claimed he was just a fraud, so he never intended to be a religious teacher. He didn't do miracles and prophecies. He was just a, a political agitator. And he was trying to stir up a rebellion against the Roman Empire, and he was eventually executed for sedition, and his rebellion didn't work. But after his death, his followers... Um, made a justification and they kind of disguised the true purpose of this movement by saying he was a religious leader of eminent sanctity and he made all of these miracles and he made these prophecies and they never really happened and there's no historical basis for them at all, at all, just none. It's just a fraud mm -hmm. to kind of throw people off the scent and all the stupid Christians went along with it because they're just dupes and parrots and... Um, then it became the religion of the empire because people really are that stupid. <laughs> okay, sheeple. Um, right, right. And then other Protestants are going to come along and say, look, we agree with you that there were no historical supernatural happenings, but this is obviously absurd. You're positing basically the, the widest, largest cultural movement of all time, um, historic Christianity, that it just arised arose from fraud and lies and naivety and there's a that's a, a complete disproportion between cause and effect something must have happened and something more substantial than what you're saying because you can't get that many people to swallow that kind of thing so there has to be some historical event why you can't just make those miracles up from nothing what happened then and they're going to say all the miracles were either um kind of chance or Jesus had some special scientific knowledge that was in advance of his day. So he knew a way to cure that wasn't known generally, but it wasn't supernatural. Or, you know, he didn't walk on water, but he did walk near some shallow water near the beach. And then it looked like he was walking on water and people thought that he was walking on water. So there's some historical truth there, but it's not just completely gratuitously made up or the, um, I heard this. I heard this with my own ears in a uh, in a Benedictine Novus Ordo Benedictine monastery. I won't say which one in. I won't say which country, but <laughs> it wasn't America. <laughs> I haven't travelled that widely. Um, I think it was a Holy Week retreat, preached by a Benedictine monk in the Novus Ordo, and he was talking about the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. He said, you know, what happened wasn't that Jesus worked some kind of crass, low, physical miracle over matter. Like he actually made more matter. He made these fishes into those fishes and there were more fishes. Something that he did was much more profound and much more beautiful and much more spiritual. What he did was he shared his own loaves and fishes and then by doing that, he opened the hearts of the people who had their loaves and their fishes tucked away selfishly in their coats. So they got out their own loaves and fishes. And then everybody shared his loaves and fishes after this beautiful moral example of this beautiful, generous, kind man. And that was the miracle. 
he changed their hearts. And wasn't that a greater miracle than if he had actually multiplied matter? <laughs> yes. Well, no, Father, it isn't actually. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> really. I mean, so it's okay. a kind of rationalist explanation. What's the historical kernel? And you understand the whole thing here is the quest for the historical Jesus. There's the Christ of history and the Christ of faith. That's that's underneath all of this. And understanding that what we read in the scriptures is not the historical truth. Obviously not, because true history knows that you don't get miracles and prophecies and so on. After that, the philosophy of Hegel becomes a bit more influential on the next couple of schools that we'll mention. And again, this is a, just a kind of overview to give you some sort of background to the, the Catholic, so-called Catholic modernists, what they were, the, the intellectual climate in which they were working, the influences that they were drawing on. So these, uh, I won't go into much detail, but the kind of influence of Hegel is felt over these things. So one, one, of, one prominent figure is um, David Friedrich Strauss, um, who was a professor at Tübingen, and he claimed that the Gospels are a collection of myths that were superimposed on the historical person of Jesus, um, based upon the fervor, the fervor and the, the religious um, sympathies and cultural prejudices of the early Christians. So okay. they already had in their mind, because they were Jewish, mostly, um, the very first Christians, all Jewish, they had a preconceived notion of what the Messiah would be like just based on the Jewish prophecies that had been given in the Old Testament. Those ideas, which they had floating around in their minds, and they sort of laid them on top of a fairly ordinary, if exceptional, young man. Mm -hmm. And it produced this literary product of the superhuman wonder-working hero, um, supernatural saint that the Gospels portray. And so, you know, if they're looking into the Gospels, what, which bits of it are historical and which bits are the product of the early Christian consciousness and the messianic sense, um, which, which are the bits that do we need to explain more as coming from their, their minds and, and those prophecies? Um, anything miraculous? anything that's poetic, long theological passages, or um, different incidents that have sort of differences in the account. All of those, they would say, okay, these are the sort of mythic elements. And they're going to say, well, look, even if the, the Gospels aren't strictly historical, they are an accurate portrayal of what the Christian consciousness at the time was thinking. So yeah, that that's, that's um, Strauss. And he's working there in Tübingen, which became a kind of uh, think tank headquarters for um, progressive theologians. Tübingen was was a was kind of the go to place for these for for modernists or what we would later call modernists. Um, it, it was a, some, some of the more prominent Catholic modernists w were there. It was a, a Luther originally a Lutheran um, school, but then had a kind of mixed faculty. So, um, and it's true that. The um, you know, what happened was the, the University of Württemberg 
in which was a Catholic university in 1817, was transferred to Tübingen as a sort of Catholic theological faculty in the Lutheran school. So right. you had these Catholic and the Protestant scholars, and Protestant scholars who were kind of liberal Protestants, living side by side, working side by side, going to faculty luncheons together, drinking with each other, probably playing billiards, smoking cigars, I don't know. And, sure. you know a normal interaction, normal human interaction, but the the influence of, of those sorts of trends in scholarship and of those um, sorts of ideas became eventually felt by the, the Catholic scholars and uh, exerted its influence over the Catholic scholars um, lamentably. I mean, mm-hmm. not for the good. Right. So, you know, some of the alumni of Tübingen, Romano Guardini, Hans Kung, Cardinal Kasper, Benedict Sixteenth, faculty included Strauss, Hegel, Kung, Ratzinger. Uh, an impressive list of alumni. Yeah. 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 And, and not insignificant names um, in, the, in the history of Catholicism in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. To say. Yeah. So the, the, the Tübingen um, school of ex- biblical exegesis it gives its name, the university gives its name to, an, to its own school. And that was the, the based on the idea that um, Christianity was originally two sects that were really opposed, but ended up synthesizing. That's um, the, the Petrine sect, which is a kind of Jewish Christian sect that, that focuses on messiahship and the observance of the Mosaic law. And then there's the, the Pauline sect, which is more kind of Hellenistic, Rome, uh, Greek-tending, um, emphasizing the universality of salvation by faith, not so much the Mosaic law and so on. And these two things are, are kind of opposed and fighting it out in early Christianity, but in the second century, under the pressure from Gnosticism, they kind of join forces, together we're stronger, and, that, and that's how you get Christianity. Um, okay, more importantly, because this is going to play into our Catholics, um, what we call the liberal school, and one of the big proponents of that is going to be Renan, Renan and and von Harnack as well. So their their view is, um, look, the Gospels are largely historical. So it was a kind of because at one point somebody was just like, look, if that's the way it is, Jesus is just a myth. Forget it. And then there's a sort of counter conservative counterattack. Well, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's. Pfft lock it down, you've gone right, too far. Right. And that's where this liberal school goes. The Gospels, they are going to say, are basically historical, except when they describe the miraculous. So hmm. the, the heart of Christ's message was his awareness. God is trying to reveal himself as the universal father of man. And apart from that, you know, uh, there's no dogma, there's no, univ- there's no specific Christian um, message apart from that, the universal fatherhood of God. And um, sort of in the same school, we can put Renan. So he he does distinguish himself from the members of that school, but he kind of agrees with them in the end. So he says the Gospels are part, partly legend um, because of the miracles, and so he ignores anything that's miraculous, and he explains it away however he wants, 
either as a trick or a fraud or from the Christian consciousness or an error of judgment on the part of the early Christians. He's not, he doesn't have one method. He kind of is a bit dilettante about these things. And then, um, then he says, Jesus existed for sure. And he must've been a spellbinding speaker, charismatic leader. And, you know, basically the best human being ever to have lived. If everybody lived like this man, we would be perfect. So this is the whole scene in biblical scholarship when the three um, scholars, Catholic scholars that I want to talk about, um, you understand Catholic in the sense of... So um, Loisy, Tyrrell and Blondel. Father, Father Alfred Loisy is the first I want to, to mention. He was coming into his scholarly career against this background. This is the cutting edge in biblical scholarship. And it carries on. I've truncated. If you want, um, you know, you read 100 Years of Modernism by Father Bomo. He'll expand things okay. a little bit there. Um, so Father Loisy... Frenchman, um, born 1875, and he was probably most notable for his criticism of scripture. So he's a brilliant scholar. He was a linguist, a philologist, and um, fascinated by languages, um, not fascinated by philosophy. He found it too dry. He found it too rational. He never really took to it. And he was studying in a time after Eterni Patris, the famous um, document which imposed scholastic philosophy, St. Thomas's philosophy, um, on the whole church of Leo XIII as, mm -hmm. as obligatory for Catholic studies. And he didn't really um, take to that. Okay. From the day of his ordination, he was plagued by a scruple. What if there was some fraud at the root of the whole Christian religion. What if it's not real, but it was just made up deliberately by deception? And he couldn't shake oh. it. Yeah. And he let it develop, unfortunately, and it began to inform his scriptural skepticism. So rather than just accepting the Bible is a historical document and can be believed at face value with some careful explanation where needed in the classic Catholic sense, like a child, um, maybe an intelligent child, well, you understand yeah, right. that with, with a yeah. certain docility of soul. Like Catholic scholars yeah. aren't idiots. We had the Pontifical Biblical Institute for a reason. And we do have a science that can can attest and defend the, the historicity of scripture. So it's not like, la, 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 I'm just going to pretend that this is historical. No, right. it, it is. And there's a whole right. fields of biblical scholarship that are serious and um, to defend that. But anyway, you understand with that docility of soul, he, mm -hmm. he didn't have, unfortunately for him and for everybody else, actually, as it turns out. So he... Uh, he got ordained and he became a professor of, of, script, of Hebrew in France. He studied with Renan in France. And 
this is really unfortunate, this next stage, because he was directed um, to read Renan in order to help the Catholics refute Renan. Okay. Because he was a scriptural scholar, and somebody uh, said to him, well, you should read Renan because we really need, need some help. Um, yeah. Now that you're a great scholar, you can help us to refute him. And it got under his skin, unfortunately. Yeah. It didn't, he couldn't refute it. Um, and it um, pushed him further and, and confirmed him in his unhealthy tendency to doubt everything. Because Renan was already doubt, voicing doubts about um, that the Loisy had in his heart, you know, about the tensions between the, the, different gospel narratives when two things are told differently um, is that a contradiction and does it mean that it wasn't historical and is there anything historical um, about the resurrection about the nativity and for both of those they seem to be incompatible with history and as he reads that in Renan and he's just like oh. so by about 1890 he's already disillusioned with the virgin birth with the resurrection his main, um, he so he's responsible for a, a biblical school as well, we could say, or associated with one, which is what we'll call the eschatological school. Eschatology being the study of the last things, the end of the world, the coming of the, the parousia, the end of the world, the end of time, mm -hmm. the second coming, um, eschatology. And... The real significance for a Catholic of his view, of the eschatological view, is um, it destroys the Catholic Church as a visible society founded by Jesus Christ. What he says is Jesus was a eschatological preacher. He thought the world was coming to an end soon, and he was getting out onto the streets and telling everybody, you know, the, world, the Jewish world of the first century is burning with enthusiasm for a dramatic divine intervention which is going to destroy the corrupt Gentile civilization, subjugate the Romans, and bring in the kingdom of God, which will be an era of peace for the Jews. He goes into Jerusalem, and he fails. And he's put to death. And afterwards, he's divinized by his followers. So he wasn't a religious teacher at all. He was an apocalyptic zealot who thought the world as men knew it was about to end and went out to tell it and so what happened afterwards with the gospel and so on the miracles sort of symbolic expression of a religious sense it was progressive idealization of of the historical person of jesus of nazareth and um especially the fourth gospel, St. John. This is a quote from Father Bomo in A Hundred Years of Modernism. The apparent realism of the scenes in the gospel according to St. John is due to the mystical imagination of the author and the energy of his conviction, which did not allow him clearly to distinguish in his religious meditations the ideal from the real, the theory from history, the symbol from its object. Yet the fourth gospel is a big book of mystical theology in which we hear the voice of the Christian conscience, not the Christ of history. In other words, St. John was so imaginative and so talented and so poetic and so brilliant that he was just so intuitive that he couldn't distinguish, even in his own mind, history from the flashes of fire and brilliance in his own brain. 
and heart. <laughs> and so it all gets muddled up together. But that's okay, because it's true, just not historical. It okay. tells us something of value, just not historical. And how exactly does right. this affect the founding of the church? Go on, Andrew, sorry. I can see you like, Wait no, 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 it's, it's good. I had never considered it like that. It's, it's, uh, it's fascinating. That's why they all want to push the composition of St. John's Gospel back. So you'll see the modernists and anybody, basically anybody who wants to say that the Gospels are not historical, uh -huh. um, they want to push the dates back 2nd century, 3rd century, 4th century, as far as they can. Because then you've got time for the Christian conscious to work and to massage the facts and to elaborate and to expand and to breathe its magical perfume into everything and to distort. Right. And... Um, the Catholics are always pushing it back, back, back. <laughs> yeah, back. Right, right. First century, you know, we've got the earliest texts here and here and here and quoted in all of these fathers here and here and here, so we know. And the modernists yeah. are always like, no, third century, fourth century. <laughs> you see this, this kind of scuffle between the Catholic and the, the modernist scholars. and Particularly the founding of the church then becomes problematic for Loisy. So right. Jesus was not a miracle-working, supernatural messenger. He was a misguided and ultimately wrong preacher of the end of the world. So he preaches the kingdom, and this is the famous quote from Loisy, Christ preached the kingdom, and it was the church that came. But he's going to say, okay, Christ didn't found the Catholic Church, but that's not a problem. Listen. She came enlarging the form of the gospel, which it was impossible to preserve as it was as soon as the Passion closed the ministry of Jesus. But he gives the justification for the church coming out of the kingdom. There is no institution on the earth or in history whose status and value may not be questioned if the principle is established that nothing may exist except in its original form. Things have to move and change. Now we know we've had Darwin, we've had Hegel. We know to live right. is to change and if you don't change, you die. But everybody knows that. So, such a principle is contrary to the law of life, which is movement, a continual effort of adaptation to conditions always new and perpetually changing. Christianity has not escaped this law of perpetual evolution and cannot be reproached for submission to it. It could not do otherwise than it has done. So the Catholic Church was not founded directly by Jesus Christ, he just announced the kingdom and the church developed out of the early Christian consciousness. And that's not a problem because that's how things happen if you actually submit to the law of evolution, which governs all human behavior. So we shouldn't be shocked and scandalized. It doesn't mean that the church is of no value. As it comes out, by the time of about 1886, he's already come to consider that Catholicism is an obstacle to the intellectual development of humanity because the old the old classic dogmatic medieval imposing scholasticism on everybody so that they can't think or breathe <laughs> um, right and he comes into contact with the writings of of kant and kantian philosophers and in the end he doubts the ability of god to reveal anything at all for man and any a man to grasp anything at all so in 1894 he was writing he was at this institute and the secretary refused to publish one of the articles that he wrote because he questioned the divinity of Christ. And Wazi looks at him with a devilish chuckle, so you're still hung up on that. 
all that old thing, you know, is still hung up on the divinity of Christ. Okay, not surprisingly, wow. he was condemned. Good. Um, that, that's good. I mean, we, sometimes we wonder when we hear about uh, Catholic modernist scholars. You know, it's kind of a crapshoot. He was, he was condemned. Um, his ideas were condemned in Leo XIII's Providentissimus Deus of okay. 1893. Two of his books were condemned in 1900 by the Archbishop of Paris, and a year after Pascendi in 1908, he was excommunicated. After that time, he wrote in his journal these words, Christ has even less importance in my religion than he does in that of the liberal Protestants, for I attach little importance to the revelation of God, the Father, for which they honour Jesus. If I am anything in religion... It is more pantheist, positivist, humanitarian than Christian. So there we are. That's for the Loisy, a Catholic wow. priest. Um, and that was I mean, his, truly, truly a, a poor soul. I mean, the way he ended just very sad. Right away off the off the end. Yeah, very very sad. But um, yeah, don't let your scruples dictate your scholarship. <laughs> yes. No. That's that's true. Yeah. I mean, but that's, you see, the, the preoccupation is how can the church survive and adapt to modern culture without being left behind? But the problem is maybe being too open and undiscerningly open to certain things in modern culture which are already breaking from sanity in their foundations. Like we don't, we don't have to barricade ourselves into a strictly medieval framework. We can engage. We can mm -hmm. engage with modern categories of thought to a certain extent. But where they're false or wrong, we can't take them as a building block. Right. And if we have contemporaries or friends or scholars writing against us who are influenced by those things and they're wrong... We shouldn't be so afraid of looking backwards and medieval and like 13th century stupid peasants to them that we bend over backwards to adapt ourselves to their methods and their their workings. That's that for for us. That's the problem. Um, he admitted some of the bad principles, and that's what all of the scholastics have said: "Pavus error in principis, manus in conclusionibus." Small error in the principles, and by the time you get to the end, it's like, whoa, way off. Yeah. yeah. The next thinker I want to say a little bit about is, is George Tyrrell, a Jesuit priest. And he was a convert, unlike Loisy. Okay. He was a convert. He was brought up as an Anglican. He was educated in a Church of Ireland school, born in Dublin in 1861. And um, as early as about a year into his jesuit life the novice master says that he should get out of the jesuits because of his mental indocility he was hmm. um well nowadays when they say in the modern seminaries and they say that somebody is too rigid it, it means it might mean that they have a you know some sort of vestige of the catholic faith so um right so but back in those days when they say he's mentally unteachable right maybe the novice master saw something yeah also, he really 
didn't like to accommodate himself to the life of the Jesuits. He was dissatisfied with a number of their customs and their um, practices and their approaches. And he wasn't, he just wasn't a team player, basically. He, uh, he kept a certain um, sense of individualism, we can maybe say. Um, okay. So, and the other thing that he kept was uh, something that we can say is a Protestant tendency in a certain sense, um, a trust of intuition over intelligence. But certainly that um, that sense of a non-rational path to the truth is something that comes up and again and again in, in modernism, intuition, without reason. And it's going to be condemned by, by Pius X as um, the sort of blind religious sentiment. Like, I have a sense... Mm. And it's not rational, and I can't. And if I put it into words, the words will be an, ir, irrational. Tyrrell had that that strong sense. He rejected um, scholasticism as inadequate, even though he admired Saint Thomas. And his whole work, he he could say, defending faith against theology. I have the faith. Mm. No, I have in my heart the sentiment. So revelation is not a revealed deposit of truths to be memorized and told to me from without and then memorized and repeated like a parrot and it's all up here. Revelation is an irrational, mystical burning in the heart and if I try to put it into words, they always come up short. So the faith is, is the faith and the words are poor symbols that don't do the task adequately, you know, and I have my words and you may have your words and who's to say if my words are your, or your words are better, but the fact is nobody's words express the feeling pro- perfectly because it's a feeling and these are words mm. and the words don't do, do justice to the reality. The reality is something grander, more mystical and more profound than any words can do justice to. That's the kind of Tyrellian idea. He's expelled from the Jesuits, and towards the end of this life, he concludes that the real Christ who redeemed him and who is God lies entirely within him. He says, I'm quite cured of the outside God. I'm quite cured of the outside God. Everything is within. And that's subjectivism. Everything is within. Um, So some of his kind of uh, theological counterparts to that is going to lead to a certain ecumenism. Religion is the spontaneous, this is a quote again from Tyrrell, religion is the spontaneous result of the demands of the human spirit fully satisfied with the emotive experience of God in us. We have the feeling first and then we express it. God is not a distant being far from man. We need to praise the virtues of the various theisms, pantheism and polytheism. For polytheism is a better expression of the divine than anthropomorphic deism, right? God cannot be squeezed into one concept. So having a kind of plurality of images or words that express an infinite reality is actually richer and better than just kind of having one God and he's a man with a white beard. Right. No room for all the good qualities in one man. Yahweh cannot be at once Apollo and the Man of Sorrows, Minerva and St. Francis. So to have more religious symbols, to have more religious 
um, expressions is actually richer and closer to the truth than just narrowing yourself to down to one. So interesting for a Catholic. But yeah, but the but the problem is is that what what he's trying to do is make it understandable for us. I mean, he, he's trying to he's trying to fit his concept of God into the way that man would naturally see God when in fact God doesn't fit man's conceptions. He's beyond any conceptions we have. So well, I, uh, I mean, I think because I know we agree, but <laughs> the thing here is that um, we will admit. So what's the grain of truth that he's grasped? Because you understand in every error, there's always a grain of truth. The grain of right. truth that he's grasped is that human language doesn't speak of exactly. God in exactly the same sense. Right. When I say you, you can't communicate the, the infinity of God in our language or even in our concepts. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? So there's a middle ground. Um, on the one hand, you could say there is nothing in common between God and man. So, such uh -huh. that any human language used as God is just necessarily false. Um, okay. in, in other words, language is completely equivocal. They do not have the same sense. When I say God is father, and when I say my dad is my father, those are not at all in any sense the same. And they're used completely in different senses, and the one doesn't tell me anything about the other. That's like, it's complete equivocation. The other mm. extreme would be to say, um, my dad is my father, and God is my father, and in exactly the same sense. You know, right. like the Mormons, let us make man in our own image. Well, an image is of a physical thing. So if man is made in the image of God, it means that God has a body, just like my body has a, is a body, and therefore God is a physical being. Right. Like there's no degree of shade of meaning at all between image and image. It's exactly the same sense used of God and man. That's to use language what we say univocally in exactly the same sense. Mm -hmm. And Catholics say, no, look, language about God is not completely equivocal. Like it, our human words convey nothing whatsoever of the of God. Nor is it completely univocal. Like it means exactly the same thing of God as it does of man. We say language about God is analogical. So, mm. God is Father, my dad is Father. Not in exactly the same senses, but not completely, completely different, such as to carry no meaning either. I can understand the senses in which they're different. The difference is more than the similarity. Right. But there is some similarity that means that language can actually express something about God truly. Fair enough? Yeah, that so, makes sense. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, God made human fatherhood. Right. So it, it, human realities can speak to us of their maker. Right. Um, but, what you, but what you're saying about, uh, about Tyrell is that he's, he's saying that you can't, you can't express it, therefore we have to, you know, he's coming up with, with a concept, well, he's not coming up with it, but he's grasping the concept of pantheism and saying, well, yep. this, is, this is then what I must believe because our language is insufficient. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah. I mean, for a Catholic, the words that we use to express the divine reality come from God. The dogmas that we believe are revealed by God. Mm -hmm. So um, sometimes the church kind of works out the best way to formulate them. But God tells us 
the word is God. We know that son of God is the right way to refer to the second person of the Trinity because that's the language of revelation. It's objective, it's given, and it signifies, not in exactly a human way, but in an analogical way. We know something of the truth from it, even if we recognize that it's in a much higher way in God than it is in man. Mm -hmm. Um, For Tyrol, what you have in your heart is a blind religious sentiment of madness and fire and poetry, and um, you have your own graspings to put that into words, and they necessarily fall short because they're human words to express a divine reality. So, no, Tyrrell is, um, for him, the whole of theology is symbolic. Every word that you can use about Christ is symbolic. Revelation it belongs to the category of impressions more than that of expression. Dog- every dogma is just a symbol of what is in the soul, of the, what is in the heart. And he thinks that the whole of the Catholic religion has to be reformed to meet this. So this is a quote from him. This is a couple of quotes strung together, and this is where I'll end. Um, this is calling for reform of the church. These are quotes taken from Father Bormo's, um Synthesis in a Hundred Years of Modernism, all quotes from Tyrrell. Official Catholicism is outmoded, but we must not abandon it, for it still holds the treasures of the spiritual life, on condition that we distinguish between the living faith and the dead theology, between the real church and the governing authority. Judaism was to live a risen and glorified life in Christianity. Well, may not history repeat itself. Is God's arm shortened that he should not again, out of the very stones, raise up seeds to Abraham? May not Catholicism, like Judaism, have to die in order that it may live again in greater and grander form? Has not every organism got its limits of development after which it must decay and be content to survive in its progeny? The Roman communion may be no more than a charred stump of a tree torn to pieces by gales and rent by thunderbolts. She may be, and probably is, more responsible for all the schisms than the schismatics themselves. Yet, unlike them all, she stands for the principle of Catholicity, for the ideal of a spirituality, a spiritually united humanity, centred around Christ in one divine society. She is at least an abortive essay towards a perfect, all-embracing religious association, which is what he wants the Catholic Church to be, realizing her full potential. I won't say anything about Pope Francis. Wow. That's some heavy stuff. Yep, the (laughs) ideal of a spiritually united humanity centered round Christ in one divine society. She is at least an abortive essay towards a perfect, all-embracing religious association. Anyway. Not for the sake of twisting it, but because they they don't have that grasp on on reality. That's what it all comes down to. The problem is, the problem is, once you get into their system... It's very hard to think your way out of it. Yeah. Because once you accept one of the principles, the rest of it follows more or less naturally. And you're like, well, where it all seems to fit together. Fine. 
Right. Small error in the principles and a big one in the conclusions. Mm-hmm. But that's it. Um, and it's such a shame. It's such a shame for these um, for these men that they didn't love scholastic philosophy. I right. wonder. I mean, I don't know exactly what their teachers were like, but scholastic philosophy is marvelous. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing, and it clarifies everything, and it it gives such light and um, clarity and uh, and peace and order. And a good teacher of, of scholastic philosophy is is a wonderful and a marvelous thing. And highly to be prized, and it's, right. it seems as if they didn't have that, and that's a shame. I, I haven't, I, I haven't sat in those classrooms to see to be exposed to what they were exposed to, but um, there are some wonderful teachers of scholastic philosophy in the world, and may they be many more, because it's right. what the world needs right now, amongst other things. Certainly, the great hope for the church, um, for the church theologically, is to be set back straight on the scholastic footing um, in my mind and in the mind of the magisterium it would seem historically (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's fair that's fair Uh, yeah they not not a lot of uh, Thomistic scholars apparently in Tübingen it seems well I mean Hegel was a member of the faculty there so yeah yeah. Kantianism and yeah Anyway, more you can read more on that in uh, 100 Years of Modernism. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, like I said, we'll put the link on there and that will be a great read. Well, Father, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for chatting with us about all this and, and giving us this springboard as we dive more into modernism. Thanks, Andrew. No, thank you. We appreciate it. All right. And uh, have a good weekend. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for listening to and watching episode 10 of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. Next week, we'll be speaking with Father Paul Robinson as we continue our study of modernism. We'll be looking at modernism through the eyes of Pope St. Pius X and how there's a direct correlation between what we learned in this episode today and the modern errors of the Church in the 21st century. If you have a question on the topic of the crisis, please feel free to ask it at sspxpodcast.com crisis. And please share this episode with someone who you think might enjoy it. If they don't know what a podcast is, please show them so that they can take advantage of all our episodes. And finally, if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of 5 or 10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this Crisis in the Church project. Until next week, thank you for listening, and God bless you. <laughs>